なも妙法蓮華経なも妙法蓮華経なも妙法蓮華経。Hi everyone, how are you? I hope this finds you in good health and secure. I wanted to talk for just a moment before we get started on the what is it the twenty sixth, the twenty seventh chapter. Boy, we're almost there. We're almost done. The former affairs of the king, fine adornment. I wanted to share something with you as you study, whether here with these videos or the free podcasts, or you read independently on your own. You know, we constantly,、uh, I've read it many times, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, that the primary importance of the Lotus Sutra or any of the Sutra is in the meaning of the teachings, not. The actual words.、Um, and that can sound a bit abstract, I admit.、Um, and for different people, it may have different meaning. <laughs>、um, but the word that strikes me this morning, because I, as you know, I've, I've been working on my own transcription of the Lotus Sutra with a lot of annotated、uh, comments. Along the way, as you read it, something、uh, more of a Lotus Sutra for our school, our independent practice of Nichiren's doctrine of the Lotus Sutra, of Shakyamuni's teachings of the Lotus Sutra. And as you,、uh, if you've been here any length of time, I'm sure you have seen the playlist for.、Um, Well, many translations,、uh, beginning with the first playlist I made many years ago called Lotus Lectures.、Uh, I, I was working from four or five different translations of the、uh, Lotus Sutra as I did that analysis. And、uh, I've only accumulated more translations from different sources. And、uh, as a comparative analysis, it's one quite fascinating how. Cultural bias creeps into all of them, whether it's a cultural bias of older Buddhist teachings,、uh, melded somehow with the cultural biases of religious language like faith and worship and those kind of things, just don't belong in the Buddhist lexicon.、Um, and the, re- the end result of that is that you end up being very confused. People tend to take The stories and metaphors and parables, kind of literally,、um, as is easy to do. That's how our samsaric mind works, yeah.、Um, but also, when you add these kind of magical, mystical terms, it's, it's quite confusing. What, what, is, what is the meaning? What's going on here?、Uh, so, undoubtedly, as I'm sure you can already tell,、uh, my endeavor in going through. All of these translations is to come up with a transcription that is as absolutely faithful, faithful, as accurate as I can make it to what? To the Sanskrit? To the Prakrit? Because he never wrote anything down, it was all verbal. So, what is the one word that just overwhelmingly keeps? With every word, and believe me, when, as much as I read the, the different translations, 
it's quite a different thing to sit down and actually write out, right? Whether it's by hand or on a word processor, whatever, to really look at each word and the sentence structure of each sentence. Where is this going? And the word that keeps coming to my mind is intent. And after all, that's Buddhism. Attitude and intent. Attitude and intent. The two are interwoven, yes? And so as I read every word of these translations with the mission to make a clear transcription of it, not only clear, but with Nietzscheen in mind and his layer of insight, right? Um, yeah, intent is constantly in the forefront of my mind. And I think, and the reason I'm talking about it isn't so much to let you into my process, but that I think when we, whenever we read anything, Buddhism or not, it's, um, it's a thought, a consideration that we should have in the forefront of our minds as we're ingesting words. What's the intent with this? What's the intent of this word? What's the intent of this sentence, paragraph, book, right? When we talk about, oh, there's an agenda in there. How do you discover that agenda? You start to be aware of the intent. Oh, this isn't just information about dot, dot, dot. It's information about dot, dot, dot structured in a way to imbue certain ideas on me. To influence me. So what would Shakyamuni's influence be? What would Nitrin's influence be? Right? I mean, I've said it before and I have videos about it. In Buddhism, we do not worship. We manifest. Namu myoho renge kyo. We manifest Buddha. That's not a prayer. That's not wishing for something to come to you from outer space or for somebody to hand you something. Right? It is self-manifestation, self-realization, self-awareness, Buddha-ness. Buddhism is a very individual practice and it depends on your, what would Nietzsche say? Resolve. Single-mindedness, boy, is that throughout all of these translations in some form, from Shakyamuni all the way to Nichiren, single-mindedly instantiate Buddha. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go back into Leon Hurwitz's translation of the Lotus Sutra. The former affairs of King Fine Adornment. What is the intent of these words, these stories? Hmm? At that time, the Buddha declared to the great assemblies, In an ancient age, long past, beyond incalculable, endless asamkaya kalpas, past reckoning or discussion, there was a Buddha named Wisdom Adorned with Flowers by the king of constellation, 
named Thunder Cl Sound of Clouds. Oh, man, that's a long word. <laughs> I'll let you try to read that. Tadagata Doran, Samyak Sambodai. His realm was named Lustrous Adornment, and his kalpa was named Joy to Behold. Now, already, just for a moment, if this was that long ago, were there humans around? Of course not. Again, that, that time dilation that Shakyamuni uses to great effect to try to break people's attachment to the clock, to time-space. He's talking about the Tathagata Suchness, which has been, that is the cosmos itself. Don't misunderstand that. I'm talking about the engine of life. I'm talking about the three components of energy, formations, or ripples, if you're into quantum quantum fields, right? Quantum energy, vacuum energy. If you're into any of those sciences, it doesn't matter if you're not. But the idea of ripples, energy going through in formations, that's some kind of a ripple action, something occurs to disturb, disrupt, enliven interactions. Interactions of what? Energy. Which fundamentally, whether you're deep into science or not, is what everything is made of. We call them particles or atoms or molecules, but all at some level are just different forms, amalgams of energies. Different temperatures, different pressures, different blah, blah, blah. Electrical, electromagnetic energy. It's all about energy. And in this formula of energy through formation into the realms of form, we have the equation Buddhism most dissects. That is, that formation of form is karma. It is something with properties, right? We chant them every day when we do gongyo. Nyoze so, nyoze in, nyoze en, nyoze kan, nyoze ho, right? Those are the ten factors or the ten suchnesses of realms of form. Realms of form can be identified with these ten suchnesses. All of them, from an atom to an elephant, to a planet to a star, to the cosmos itself. That formula begets karma, but the karma or that formula is instantiated as the Buddha. Not a man, not a person. But that Buddha isn't useful to us. That Buddha is an extant, constantly continuous momentum that is everything in the cosmos, all phenomena. What is useful to us, though, is 
our mind perceiving that very process, the engine of life, occurring, being within its momentum to experience that very truth. That's not normally how we look at the world. We tend to look at the world after that's all done. We take account. Oh, there's one of those. There's one of those. This isn't that. That isn't this. And by identifying all that stuff, we start to get a conjured picture of self, a physical self. Even if we include attitude in that, it's still an attitude born of possessions, amalgamations, collections, refuse, attitude. But that's samsara. That's the way we experience the physical world. Very materialist. Hmm? What we're trying to do with Buddhism is to break loose of that and see the world as it is occurring. The process of life. The engine of life. Oh, that self, that isn't conjured. That's a sentient experience of the process at work. And then everything seems different, appears differently. We don't need to sink our claws into stuff. We're all happening right along with it. Hmm. That's a very different point of view. Yeah. So when Shakyamuni talks about these long, long ago timelessness, he breaks time and space all the time. He wants to shift our mind from samsara to conceptual experience. So all these different Buddhas he's talking about, all these different bodhisattvas, these emanations as we read, they're fabrications to indicate a singular thing. And isn't this the one Buddha vehicle, the one vehicle law, the great vehicle law? It's about what we can call the Tathagata suchness. That suchness, that tendencies and conditions of the cosmos, that we all ha are instantiations of. That innate Buddha. We just have to awaken it. It's in there sleeping. It's not really sleeping. It's just that we're so busy collecting. We don't listen to it. We don't hear it. Mm. So we need to kind of push that samsaric monkey mind aside. So that, oh, things, wow. Look at that. This is very different. Nitrin, thank you, Nitrin, provides us a focal tool for this materialist world, this physical plane, this realm of forms. He gives us a perfected form of the ceremony in the sky or in the air. The treasure tower, Namo Myo seven jewels. He puts it all in a scroll, has us put it in a, a stupa via the Butsudan, 
We make our offerings light, smells, incense, plants, water, right? Just like we're enacting the lotus teaching. And by focusing on myoho, namo myoho denge kyo, those monkey minds, they get weaker and weaker. They fade to the back as we penetrate our Gohonzon portal, our mental awakening of the Buddha eye. And with our voices, our bodies, our tongues, our, the air in our lungs, the vibrations, hearing ourselves, keeping a rhythm, we slowly migrate into this potential instantiation, myo, ho, and then renge happens. Boom! We're there. We're in Buddhahood. Hmm. At first it's fragile, but it's also very reactive, right? Whenever you experience something new, it's like something happened. I don't know what. I'm not used to it, but things are different, right? Happens. Then over time, we get accustomed to it. Man, we get bored so easily. <laughs> but over time, if we can just stick with it, right? What does Nietzschean say? Resolve, resolve, resolve. Well, it's all based on understanding the intent of these teachings. So now I'm going to shut up and get back to it. <laughs> all right. I can't believe how long. I almost want to count. That's the uh, autistic OCD in me. I want to count every letter. How many A's? How many R's? <laughs> that is an incredibly long word. All right. So this uh, thunder sound of clouds, Tathagoran Samyak Sambuddha. His realm is named Lustrous Adornment. His, uh, his kalpa, his time of being, or instantiation, was named Joy to Behold. Go figure. Within that Buddha's Dharma was a king named Fine Adornment. Ah, the subject of this chapter. That king's lady was named Pure Virtue. So those of you who thought you had to be, uh, 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 that a Buddhist monk would have to be singular and alone because of the taboo of women, well, just blew that apart. Hmm? His lady, his possession. <laughs> There's a lot of misogyny in this, but you got to remember that this is based on teachings that are 2,700 years old. We still have misogyny today, so it's not likely to leave us. But please, ladies, don't be don't take this as an affront. It's not about you. It's about the mind. Yeah, Buddhism's about the mind, and you have just as talented a mind as any man. So, all right, per, pure virtue. That's quite a nice name for a lady. <laughs> Gift of the Spotless One. She had two sons, one named Pure Womb, well, and the other Pure Embryo. Were these some cool sons? <laughs> the second named Pure, whoop, wait a minute. One named Pure Womb. Oh, it could be said Pure Womb or Pure Embryo. Fine. The second named Pure Eye. Hmm. 
These two sons had great supernatural power, merit, and wisdom, and were long practiced in the path trodden by bodhisattvas, that is, in Dhanaparamita. Silaparamita. He's going to go through all the paramitas. Okay, the paramita of expedient devices. Sometimes the paramita of Dharani, right? Goodwill, compassion, joy, and indifference. Indifference, hmm, not a good word to use. See, there I go looking at words again. But in perturbances would be more accurate, right? It's not indifferent. When we're indifferent, we don't pay attention. No, we're incredibly compassionate beings, especially as being described here. So the indifference they're trying to communicate is not being perturbed, not easily shaken, yes? All right. In short, in everything up to and including the dharmas in 37 parts that conduce to the path, in all of these, they had clear understanding. They had arrived at all. They had also attained the Bodhisattva's pure samadhi, the samadhi of the sun, stars, and constellation, the samadhi of pure ray, the samadhi of pure color, the samadhi of pure sparkle, the samadhi of eternal adornment, and the samadhi of the womb of great imposing excellence. At all of these samadhis, as well as uh, as well had they arrived. So they were quite accomplished bodhisattva. You would say bodhisattva mahasattva, yeah? At that time, Buddha, wishing to draw to him the king fine adornment and being compassionately mindful of the beings, preached this scripture of the Dharma Blossom, the Myoho Rengekyo. At that time, the two sons, pure womb and pure eye, went before their mother and joining their palms, ten fingers to ten fingers. Mm, it's the first time I've read that. It's usually folded hands, yes. Deferentially spoke, We beg leave, mother, to go before the Buddha, wisdom adorned with the flowers by the king of constellation, thunder sounds of clouds. No wonder it's a long word, yeah? Where, he, uh, where we, too, will attend him, approach him with familiarity, make offerings to him, and pay re reverence to him. What is the reason? In the midst of the multitude of all the gods and men, this Buddha preaches the scripture of the Dharma Blossom, Yolho and we must listen to it receptively. The mother declared to her sons, Well, your father believes in and accepts external ways, being profoundly attached to the dharma of the Brahmins. You must report to your father and only then go off together. So we have to convince good old dad, good old Hinduist dad, that there's a superior teaching out there that we want to go listen to. And you know how dads are reported in uh, everything we write books about from Shakespeare to... Uh, to uh, Roman Polanski. <laughs> yeah, they don't like us doing anything beyond their capacities. Goodness, no. They're the authority, always. Well, that's the cliche, yes. Pure womb and pure eye address their mother with palms joined. We are Dharma princes, yet we have been born into a household of crooked views such as this. 
The mother declared to her sons, Taking thought for your father with concern, you must show him some incredible feats. For if he is enabled to see them without fail, his thoughts shall be purified, and he, w he may permit us to go before that Buddha. Well, she's including herself now. So she's saying, well, if you demonstrate with him, basically an opportunity for debate, but if you know so much better than your father, then convince him, is what she's saying. And then he'll let us all go. Thereupon the two sons, taking thought for their father, compassion for their father, danced in empty space at a height equal to that of seven tala trees and displayed varieties of magical feats in empty space, walking, remaining still, sitting, lying down, emitting water from the upper part of their bodies, emitting fire from the lower part of their bodies. Ugh, the visuals that come to my mind. Emitting water from their lower part of their bodies and emitting fire from the upper part of their bodies. Or else displaying a body large enough to fill empty space. Then displaying a small one, or a small one and then a large one, vanishing in empty space, then suddenly appearing on the ground, sinking into the earth as if it were water, treading on the water as if it were earth, displaying such a variety of magical feats as these. They caused their, the king, their father, to believe and understand with a pure heart. Well, I'm blown away, right? Well, please don't take this story as literal, yeah. But obviously... They spoke to their father of some quite mind-opening things. I really wish it was more like that, or at least translated more like that. Because this is, I don't know, it's fun to write this way, but it can confuse people, right? At that time, the father, and again, Buddhism is about the mind. So these could be wonderful stories to get the mind to wander and... And as one of uh, one of you pointed out to me in a comment, uh, sometimes, you know, when you fuse with the mandala, it could you might use the word that was magical, but we understand when we say magical as Buddhists that we don't mean a rabbit out of a hat. Even a magician will tell you that it's all sleight of hand, right? So what we're focused on again is mentation. How do we conceive of ideas and conjure truth, right? So I don't like to use the word magical because it's too often con a connotation of exterior forces instead of understanding that it's our mind at work, yes? All right. The two sons spoke deferentially. The fathers asked them, you know, who, whose pupils are you? Who is your teacher? Where do you get all this insight and information? How do you know all this, right? That's a good king. He's not insulted. He's rather enamored and not to be one-upped. He wants to know where this information come from. Can I rely on it, right? Oh, great king, that Buddha wisdom adorned with flowers by the king of constellations named Thunder Sound of Clouds... <sighs> who seated on a Dharma throne at the foot of a Bodhi tree made of seven jewels in the midst of the multitude of gods and men's of all the worlds broadly preaches the scripture of the Dharma blossom. He is our master and we are his disciples. The father told his sons, now I also wish to see your teacher 
let's go together. Make sure I'm hearing this correctly and see what I can make of this, right? Thereupon the two sons descended from empty space and arrived before their mother, where, with palms joined, they deferentially addressed her, saying, The king, our father, now already believes and understands and is capable of opening up his thoughts to Anatara Samyak Sambodai. For our father's sake, we have already done the Buddha's business. Typical sons, right? We beg permission, mother, to leave the household and cultivate the path before that Buddha. Oh, this is a big ask. This isn't just going to visit. This is to leave the household. We've heard this before, right? So the king, the father, no little perturbance is this, that these sons wish to leave the abode of the household, their support, their responsibilities, their household responsibilities to the family, to him, to the mother, to go be monks and follow this teacher of the law. That's a much bigger ask, right? At that time, the two sons wishing to restate this meaning in Gathas addressed their mother. We beg you, mother, to let us leave the household and become sramanas, for Buddhas are very hard to encounter. Truth. And we, should, and we would learn as a Buddha's f followers, rare as the Andambara flower, nay, harder yet to encounter is a Buddha. Shaking off one's troubles is also difficult. We beg permission to leave the household. Very respectful ask, but no less a huge ask, yeah? The mother straight away declared, she didn't have to think about it, I permit you to leave the household. What is the reason that Buddha is hard to encounter? So she understands the import of their enlightenment. And, of course, being parents, they too, right? Filial responsibility. Filial, depends on how you say it. Thereupon the two sons addressed their father and mother, saying, Excellent father and mother, we entreat you. It is time to go before the Buddha, wisdom adorned with flowers by the king of constellations, named Thunder, Sound of Clouds, to approach him with familiarity and to make offerings to him. What is the reason? <clears throat> A Buddha is hard to encounter as an Adambara flower, as hard as it would be, for a one-eyed tortoise to encounter a hole in a floating piece of wood. That's an ancient story, and Nietzsche talks about it a lot, right? Yet our former merits have been profound and of great proportions. We have been born into the Buddha Dharma. For this reason, father and mother, you must grant us permission, thus enabling us to leave the household. What is the reason the Buddhas are hard to meet? and the time is also hard to encounter. At that time, in the rear palace of the king fine adornment, 84,000 persons all became capable of receiving and holding this scripture of the Dharma blossom. This number 84,000 comes up a lot, doesn't it? Simply a stand-in or a meme, if you will, for a huge amount. The Bodhisattva Pure Eye, was already long accomplished in the samadhi of the Dharma Blossom. He'd already been practicing. 
The Bodhisattva pure womb, for incalculable hundred thousands of myriads of millions of kalpas, had been accomplished in the samadhi of that separates one from evil destinies, for he wished to enable all living beings to separate themselves from their own evil destinies. A very Bodhisattva aspiration, yeah? Now, obviously, the sun wasn't as old as the cosmos, as this would indicate, but that Tathagata suchness, which has is timeless, was evidently informing his ninth consciousness, his karmic instantiation as a human being, yeah? The royal lady attended the samadhi of the Buddha's assemblies and was able to know the treasure house of the Buddha's secrets. In this way, the two sons, by resort to the power of expedient devices, skillfully converted their father, causing his heart to believe or to accept and understand and to love the Buddha Dharma. Wow. Thereupon, the king fine adornment together with his assembled ministers and his retinue, the lady pure virtue and the harem women, and a retinue of the rear palace, as well as his two sons together with their own 42,000 men, at the same time went to the Buddha's palace. Let's all go. Family picnic. When they reached it, with their head bowed, did they abeyance or reverence to his feet, circumnambulated him three times, and then stood off to one side. At that time, the Buddha preached the Dharma to the king, demonstrated to him, taught him, benefited him, and afforded him advantage. Advantage being insight, yes? The king was overjoyed. Then the king, fine adornment, and his lady undid their pearl necklaces, whose value was a hundred thousand, hundred thousands, and scattered them over the Buddha. In the midst of empty space, they magically created a jeweled terrace with four pillars. Within the terrace was a great jeweled couch, over which they spread a hundred thousand myriads of divine cloaks, and on them, on top of them was a Buddha, seated with legs crossed and emitting a great ray of light. At that time, the king fine adornment thought, a Buddha's body is rare, erect and awesome, most distinguished, having perfected matter of supreme subtlety. At that time, the Buddha wisdom adorned with flowers by the king of constellation named Thunder Sound of Clouds declared to the fourfold multitude, right, the fourfold Monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. Hmm? Do you see this king fine adornment standing before me with palms joined or do you not? This king with, his, with my dharma shall become a bhikshu. With subtle striving, he shall cultivate and practice the dharmas that conduce to the Buddha path and shall contrive to become a Buddha whose name shall be King of the Sala Trees, whose realm shall be called Great Light, and whose Kalpa shall be called Age of the Great Exalted King. That Buddha, King of the Sala Trees, shall have an incalculable multitude of bodhisattvas and an incalculable number of voice hearers, shravakas. His realm shall be flat and even, free of obstacles, 
Such shall be his merits. Straight away that king conferred the realm upon his younger brother, and with his lady, his two sons, and his varied retinue, left the household within the Buddha Dharma and cultivated the path. When the king had left the household for 84,000 years, constantly striving and vigorously persevering, he put into practice the scripture of the blossom of the fine dharma. When this time had passed, he attained the samadhi of the adornment of all pure merit and straightway ascended into empty space to a height equal to that of seven tallas trees. That analogy is used a lot in this story, isn't it? Where are we time-wise? Yeah. Okay. Oh, we'll do one more paragraph here, and yeah, it goes on quite a while. Yeah. Okay. Then he addressed the Buddha, saying, O world-honored one, these two sons of mine have already done the business of the Buddha by resort to supernatural penetrations, see, mind, and feats turning my crooked thoughts and enabled me to dwell secure in the midst of the Buddha Dharma and to see the world-honored one. These two sons are my good friends. It is because they wish to raise up my wholesome roots of former ages to confer benefit upon me that they came to be born in my house. That's quite a beautiful thing to say about your sons, right? So, we will continue with this hyperbole <laughs> of the affairs of King Fine Adornment. A story, obviously, of filial, which Nietzsche would pick upon, that filial responsibility, that filial connection, right? Karmic connection to, uh, I mean, the whole family ends up leaving the household. So who's running the place? I don't know. Anyway, that's not the point, is it? It's a departure, if you will, from ideations of the physical, material world to a much higher plane of understanding of life as a whole and being immersed in that mind state, yeah? So, curious to see where we end up going in this story. We'll probably finish it in the next video. Um, in the meantime, I, I have to thank you again for your support. Like and subscribe. It's a Bodhisattva Act, right? Because it helps promote. If you, if it's helpful, and uh, many of you have been buying uh, e-books, print books, mandalas, uh, super helpful to keep the bills paid and this this uh, multifarious um, uh, resource growing and uh, present. So thank you for that, patrons. You guys are bodhisattvas. Uh, your uh, your donations monthly through Patreon or PayPal directly. Um, incalculable, well, they're calculable, but in without measure, their influence and their support uh, for me personally and for everything I'm trying to do in this resource, you guys are awesome. So thank you. And uh, as usual, please take care of your health so you can keep your practice strong and savor it. I will see you in the next one. Thanks again. Bye for now.
Thank you.